If you've got a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. If you don't have a Bible or you're just lazy, it's probably up on the slide there. But it's good to have your own Bible. It's good to be able to mark it up and make notes and question marks and things like that. So I would encourage you to bring it. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Listen to the Word of God. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself and that you would show us ourselves and that we would see the gaps that need to be closed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We confess and believe what your word says about itself, that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes forth and it accomplishes whatever you've purposed for it to do in that moment, and it comes back to you bringing the fruit that you have purposed. It never returns empty and void. Therefore, we believe and confess that when the man of God stands amongst the people of God and the house of God on the day which the Lord has set aside and preaches from the word of God, that you do truly speak to your people, that this is your best mechanism for changing us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would do so. And we look to you and to you alone. Help me to disappear and magnify yourself. Amen. Well, I, I'm puzzled because you don't look like a mighty crowd, but you sure sing like one. It is really good today, guys. And I just want to say, I'm so proud of you in a, uh, almost feel like a paternal kind of sense. Now that's odd because some of you are a good 30 or 40 years older than me, but um, I feel, I, I'm so proud of you. Um, you've come so far and, uh, and it's neat and I appreciate it. Last week, we began exploring together what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 about growing up in Christ, about becoming mature. Um, he uses the, the phrase, uh, as it's translated in the ESV, uh, mature manhood. Um, the literal translation, and I think the, the King, New King James gets it a little bit closer um, to, the, to the literal translation, is to a perfect man. Now, the word perfect um, there isn't talking about morals. Uh, the word perfect is teleos in the Greek, and it means fully developed 
according to its nature. You see, in the, in the Greek understanding, for instance, a child is not perfect because his or her capacities have not yet matured. The body was not fully developed. The mind was not fully developed. The judgment and the character were still in the process of being formed. And once those capacities had all matured, then the person is teleos, or perfect in the Greek understanding. They embody all of the characteristics that they should have at their fullest level of development. And that's what uh, ties Paul's statement in verse 13 about mature manhood of the stature of the fullness of Christ to his talk about children in verse 14. So in other words, the idea is growing up to perfection, and it's not to sinless moral perfection. You'll never get that until you die and go to heaven. It's about becoming all that you were meant to be. It's about realizing all of the latent things that God has put in you by his spiritual gifting to bring you to a place of maturity and usefulness and balance and goodness. Now, I want you to notice something. All of this language presupposes a process of growth from immaturity to maturity. Now, when a child does not develop, doesn't grow in one way or another in a manner that's consistent with how other children in the same age range develop, we don't just stand back and go, well, that's too bad. We don't yell at the child. We, we get together. We, we try to address that. Teachers and psychologists and counselors and, and even physicians will come together and they will say, this child is not hitting these benchmarks. What can we do to identify the issues and help this child grow and develop? Well, according to Paul, that's not too different from how Jesus wants the church to be. There are benchmarks of development. There are benchmarks of growth. And we want to see Christians grow and hit those appropriate benchmarks. And when they reach those benchmarks, we can say, good. Thank goodness. She's progressing towards functional maturity. Now, there are many um, descriptions of these benchmarks in the Scripture, but, but Paul gives three important ones here in this passage. The three important benchmarks for spiritual growth are just mentioned in these few verses, and we explored the first one last Sunday, and we might call that first one stability in doctrine. Stability in doctrine. In other words, we want Christians who have a solid experience-based knowledge of the foundational truths of the Christian life. We want people to, to be the sort of people who can identify error in doctrine in the same way that you can identify a problem with your car. Um, when you drive your car every day, you know how it sounds, you know how it smells, you know how it shifts, you know how long it takes to warm up, all of those things. And then sometimes you'll notice something different. A different sound, a different smell, a different feel. A little light pops on here and there, and you go, something's not right. And, and you, you base that on your experience with the car while it's working like it should. Well, it's the same way with the Christian life 
and error in doctrine. We want you to be able to have such an experience of walking with Jesus in the truth that when something comes in that's not right and, and lodges itself in a church or in your head or wherever, you, you think about it for a while and you go, huh, something doesn't feel right. Something's not functioning like it should. I, I better go and have that checked out. Now, I, I mentioned last week that there are certain doctrines that are absolutely foundational and absolutely critical, and you can't give up on them. You can't compromise with them. You, uh, you can't be a Christian without them, and no church that gives up on them can continue to remain a Christian church. And they're like the biggies. They're important. They're things like God being the creator of all things and the, the doctrine of the Trinity and the unique inspiration and infallibility of the Scriptures and, and the, the nature of Christ, that He was fully human and fully divine, that He was born of a virgin, that He was the unique and only Son of God who was, as I said, both fully human and fully divine. And, and you've got to have then the existence of the supernatural, and the miraculous, and Christ's atoning death on the cross is another one we can't give up on. His bodily resurrection, the need that every human being has for redemption in Christ by grace through faith, those are all non-negotiables. And if someone holds to those and lives in light of those, we ought to acknowledge those people as a brother or a sister in Christ, whatever our other disagreements with them might be. But there are other issues that are important, because all of God's truth is important, but not every issue strikes at the vital organs of the faith, of redemption and salvation. There can be sincere differences of opinion and scriptural interpretation that may make it difficult or even impossible for us to co-labor together in the same congregation or in the same denomination, but which ought not keep us from fellowship and love and praying together, and if need be, coming to one another's aid. In other words, there will be people in heaven who had wrong theology on earth. Did you know that? There will be people in heaven who have wrong theology on earth. Not, not you, of course. Your theology is all fine, okay? You've got everything exactly right. But there'll be other people who will still be in heaven and they will have wrong theology. And that's just the way it is. And, and, and let me say one other thing before we move on. We must beware of others and beware in ourselves of becoming the kind of person who, for instance, prides him or herself on having correct doctrine on a certain issue, all the while ignoring the most important thing which is manifesting Christ-likeness in your life. You can become the kind of person who, for instance, prides yourself on having proper doctrines concerning the Holy Spirit and all the while live a life that does not manifest the fruit of the Spirit, that is not full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You know, one of the most loathsome human beings I ever met lived exactly that way. Oh, he was good on correct doctrine according to his denomination and tradition. And he'd say, well, I, I believe all the right things. I tithe. I don't drink. 
I've spoken in tongues. That was a big one in his denomination. And yet that man was literally a monster. The most loathsome human beings I've ever known. And correct doctrine that does not lead to a correct posture before God and man and correct behavior is nothing more than a pharisaical coping mechanism. And it's very dangerous. In other words, don't tell me how interested you are in the Bible if at the same time you are disobeying the Bible without any sense of wrong or shame in some other more foundational department of your life. And you know what? If you catch me doing that, please bring it to my attention. Thank you. I've had people do that to me in this church, to me, for me, however you want to say it. Sometimes it feels like to me, and sometimes it feels like for me or with me. But, uh, and I've said, I've said, okay, what you say makes sense. I was wrong. I won't do that anymore. And I haven't. Uh, the, the scriptures talk about this process, don't they? they? They say, for instance, let a wise man rebuke me. It is oil to my head. That's what David says in Psalm 141. And there are many other scriptures which say essentially the same thing. You see, if you want to be godly, you will want to be corrected when you are wrong. Because sometimes, friends, sin is like bad breath. Have you ever noticed that when you have bad breath, you are the only one that doesn't smell your breath? Everybody else is like, whoo, and you're just like, what? It's fine. You know the funny thing is, whose nose is closest to your bad breath? Yours. And sometimes sin is that way, and we don't see it, and other people can see it a mile off, and we're just oblivious to it. And, and they come to beside us, and in love, they say, here's a mint, you know? Here's a theological mint. You, you need to straighten this part out. So here, here's the real issue. Do you want to be right in the fullest sense of the term? Or do you want to just appear to be right in front of men and women. You see, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because all they wanted was human acclaim and human approval, and it literally made it impossible for them to believe in the Son of God. He said in John 5, how can you believe, talking to the Pharisees, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And the answer to that question is, you can't. You cannot believe when you are seeking the approval and praise of men and not worried about the approval and praise of God. Your whole focus is in the wrong place. Well, the first benchmark, as I said, is a, a kind of a doctrinal maturity and stability. The second benchmark is a commitment to the truth and in particular, a commitment to speaking the truth and speaking only the truth. It continually amazes me how much culturally acceptable non-truth there is in the words of God's professing children. Professing Christians will lie to you at the drop of a hat, and they won't have any sense of guilt or remorse about it. Now, why is that? It's very troubling. What's the issue? Well, they tell you some lie. And then you find out later, that's not the issue. Why do you do that? Well, it's because at some level we're afraid of the truth. We're afraid of what will happen if the truth 
is brought out into the open. Whose feelings might be hurt? My feelings might be hurt. I might not want to face the truth. And so we lie. And so lies then very naturally become the currency in our relationships. And that's just wrong. The story is told of a, a little girl in a Sunday school class who was asked, what is a lie? And her answer was, a lie is an abomination to God and a very present help in time of trouble. And that's how many of us live. Now I want to ask you, friends, who is the father of lies? Satan. He was a liar from the beginning. And lies are his currency. When he speaks lies, says Jesus, he's speaking out of his character. He's speaking his native language. And Jesus says, no, if you're one of my people, this doesn't mark your life. Do you realize that what you habitually speak reflects your character? It reflects how your heart or your spirit has been formed. And so if lies naturally roll off of your tongue, it's because your spirit has been formed in such a way that you are afraid of the truth. And you don't believe that you can trust God if the truth gets out. Now, I understand. Sometimes I'm afraid of the truth too. But part of growing up in Christ is learning how to trust God with the truth when it is appropriate for the truth to be spoken and the truth to be heard. And that is not, friends, in every situation. There are some things that are just private, and as such, they aren't appropriate for everybody to know. I mean, you don't need to publicize your, your social security number or your MasterCard number on Facebook, right? Maybe your cell phone number would be okay, I don't know. But you don't want to publicize certain things. And, and so there are things that are just, it's appropriate to conceal them. It's appropriate for the knowledge about them to perhaps be limited to a small number of people that need to know. And so there are times where it's appropriate to keep secrets. God himself keeps secrets, after all. He says that. He says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and our children. That's Deuteronomy 29, 29. But when it is important that the truth comes out, then the truth should be plainly set forth. Now, the truth can be painful, can it? The truth can be costly. People might not like you anymore if they hear the truth. And sometimes you avoid the truth because you don't want to pay the legitimate cost of your actions. You're trying to shift the cost of your actions to somebody else. And you're using a lie or the concealing of the truth to do it. And that's a form of stealing. I heard once about a guy that, that dinged another person's car, a parked car in a crowded parking lot, and a number of people saw the accident, and the driver gets out, and he gets a piece of paper, and he writes a note, and he leaves it on the damaged car's windshield. And when the car owner gets back to their car hours later, they see the damage, and they're distressed, of course. And then they, they see the note, and when they read the note, it says this, I accidentally damaged your parked car. A number of witnesses are watching me write this note. They think I'm giving you my name and insurance information, but I'm not. Now, that's how we can steal and use lies to do it. 
But oftentimes, especially in the church, we hide the truth because we're afraid of the things that other people are going to do with the truth. We're afraid that people will scorn us or will laugh at us or think less of us or use it to make themselves feel superior to us. We're, we're afraid of the rejection that can come with the truth being known. We're afraid, and so we hide. We hide from the truth. And as a consequence, we're in a position where we can't get the help that we desperately need because we don't know who we can trust. We're afraid people are going to use the truth to beat us over the head with. And that's why the third benchmark of maturity is speaking the truth in love. In love. That's critically important. If we go back to late May and to early June, you will perhaps recall uh, our discussions about the first part of Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll just read that to you in case you don't. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now here's what all that means. You want to sum it up? We don't reject people in the kingdom of God. We don't subject them to the various forms of attack and withdrawal that mark relationships amongst the worldlings. We stand still, and we love them. Now, remember our definition of love, too. Love is a desire for another person's well-being as God defines their well-being and a willingness to do whatever is within your power to accomplish that well-being. So that is your posture towards everybody if you are standing in the kingdom of God. If you are walking with Jesus in the easy yoke with the light burden, you are a person who stands still, you don't attack, you don't withdraw, you don't withdraw to attack, and you don't attack by withdrawing. There's all kinds of ways we can do it. We don't do that. We stand still. And we look and we say, now, what is God's best for this person? And what can I do to help bring that best into being? We accept them. We love them. So that when people come into the church, we should always be communicating to them in one way or another that this is a safe place for people who have problems that are significantly impacting and often even ruining their lives, it's a safe place to address those problems and to get help. We are a unique resource in all of the world because we are the people of God and we are the only place where the supernatural power of God is available from God through his people to be extended to those who are in need, who are lost, who are confused, who are broken, who are rebellious. And you don't have to be very far advanced in your own journey to be used by God to help someone else. You just need to be a step or two ahead of the person you're trying to help, and you need to be completely open to Jesus and what he wants to do through you, and then you need to keep progressing in your own journey. That's it. You just need to be a step or two ahead and willing to let yourself be used by Jesus, and you keep walking too. And that's all you need to do.
Now, in order to do this effectively, we're going to have to give something up. And it's a very common cultural practice that we're going to have to give up. It's very common when someone has a problem and needs to change for other people in their lives to pour out condemnation on their heads. And we do that because at some level we think that that will help them. We think if I, if I tell them what an idiot they are and how horrible it is that they're in the situation that they're in, maybe they'll want to clean up their act. So, so I'm just going to pour on the condemnation just a little bit, just in, in measured amounts, maybe. And, and you think, well, that'll make them want to change. Loved ones, it never does. It actually makes change harder very often. And here's why. Because you turn a change of character for the sake of the well-being of the person who needs to change into a mere change in external behavior that they do in order to keep you happy. And so it's a form of coercion. And as such, it often breeds very deep resentment and defiance in the person who needs to change, and they actually become resistant to changing because you have conflated in their minds growing in godliness and spiritual and moral health with earning your love and acceptance, which they should not have to do. They should not have to earn that because that's a form of attack and withdrawal which the Christian has given up in the kingdom. I can't count the number of marriages, for instance, that I've dealt with where the person who needs to change, who acknowledges their need to change, who even at some level wants to change, will not pursue change because if they do, he wins or she wins, meaning the spouse. You know, I, I want to quit drinking, but she will not get off my case. And I'd be darned if I'm going to cave into that. And so they keep drinking. I want to quit spending money on the credit card. I want to quit doing this and that and the other thing. I want to quit this and that. But if I do that, and he's been after me to do that for 10 years, then he wins. And I'm not going to have him win. And so they lock themselves into their problematic, and even sinful behavior because the other person has made them uh, enter into a power struggle with them rather than just leaving them to God. And of course, this doesn't only happen in marriages. It happens in relations between parents and children. It happens in the church. Dallas Willard uh, has a, a wonderful quote in his book, Renovation of the Heart, uh, he talks about this within the church, and I believe the, the, uh, we have a slide for it. He writes, One of our finest Christian college presidents recently devoted his periodic mail-out to the question, Why are Christians so mean to one another so often? He quotes numerous well-known Christian leaders on this theme, and he says for himself, as a leader of a Christian organization, I feel the brunt of just this kind of meanness within the Christian community, a mean-spirited suspicion and judgment that mirrors the broader culture. Every Christian leader I know feels it. It is difficult to be a Christian in a secular world, but you know, it is sometimes more difficult to be a leader in Christian circles. There, too, you can be vilified for just the slightest move that is displeasing to someone. And he continues on with the details. 
there is, there, this is one of the most common points of commiseration among our leaders. The leader of one denomination recently said to me, when I'm finished with this job, I'm going to write a book on the topic, Why Are Christians So Mean? Well, there actually is an answer to that question. And we must face this answer and effectively deal with it, or Satan will sustain his stranglehold on spiritual transformation in local congregations. Christians are routinely taught by example and word that it is more important to be right, always in terms of their beloved vessel or tradition, than it is to be Christ-like. In fact, being right licenses you to be mean and indeed requires you to be mean, righteously mean, of course. You must be hard on people who are wrong, especially if they are in positions of Christian leadership. They deserve nothing better this is part of what I have elsewhere called the practice of condemnation engineering. Let me say this clearly. Christ-likeness is by far more important than doctrinal correctness according to a specific Christian tradition, whether that would be the Reformed tradition and the Presbyterian tradition, which I belong to and uphold, or the Lutheran or the Wesleyan or the Baptist or, or whatever. It's far more important to be godly, to be like Christ, than it is to be right. We often do this because deep down we believe what the world believes. We believe that truth and love are mutually exclusive. That if you're going to love someone, you cannot bring the truth to them, and the truth is going to have to be squashed in your relationship. Conversely, if you're going to tell the truth to someone, you have to be at least a little mean in case they don't like it and push back. And you've got to overcome that with your own anger and resolve. Now, remember that love isn't just telling people what they want to hear. It's not just doing the things that they want you to do. Love is desiring and working for that other well, uh, person's well-being as God defines their well-being, and that's not as they define their well-being. Often the worst thing you can do for a person is give them their own way. But love is a commitment to the truth in their life. Now, there's more that can be said on these things, and I don't have time to say it, and I also don't have time to tell you all the things I don't mean by what I've said. But if you have specific questions, I'm happy to come and talk with you about them one-on-one. -on -one. But know this, there is a better way. There is a way to handle the real issues of life from a posture of deep restfulness and deep confidence in Christ. Where the good is accomplished in the lives of everyone involved without anger, without attack, without withdrawal. Where the truth is clearly set forth in a way that everyone involved can acknowledge it and where space is made for repentance and forgiveness and growth in grace in the midst of the love and the support of the people of God. And where we bear with one another in all humility and gentleness, in great patience and love, 
where we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? You know, there is a, 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 just an absolutely delightful passage in Romans that talks about life in the church when it's running as it is supposed to run. And it's in Romans chapter 12, and I didn't have a slide made for this one, so you're going to have to look it up on your own if you're interested. But in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, listen to what Paul says when he talks about the truth, about the church, rather. Romans chapter 12. And verse 9, let love be genuine. In other words, no faking it. No, I love you to your face and I talk about you ugly behind your back. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the will of God for us. And this is where we are going as a church. We are making intelligent, purposeful strides towards that goal of becoming a body of, of people whose habitual way of being is like that. Don't you want that? Don't you want a life where you're not worried about the truth? Where you're full of love? Where you're loved in return? Where you're able to just accept people where they're at without blessing and and, and calling good every single thing that they're doing, but you're not worried about going, I just want you to know, I don't approve of that right there. They're probably aware of that. Where love, real love, fills us all. That's where we're going. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so.